of God's word with you this morning, please turn to the book of John, to the book of John chapter 3, passage this morning. And as you are doing so, I just want to remind us as it is Reformation Sunday, really the battle, the heart of the Reformation was twofold. First, it was a battle for the word of God to be placed in the hands of the people of God. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church kept the truths of Scripture, um, wanted to safeguard it, protect it from misinterpretation, from error. And so it was not common. It was not popular. Often it was not able for the people, the commoners, to have the Scriptures. And so if you go and look at this time period, many died translating the Bible interpreting the Bible, getting it placed into the language of the people, into their hands. There was a famous saying um, during a debate of this time, what's going to happen if the Word of God gets in the hands of the commoners? And, uh, and I forget which theologian it was, it may have been Wycliffe that said, give me time, give me enough time, and the man who handles the plow will know the Scriptures better than the Pope. That's the benefit, the blessing of the Word of God in the hands of the people of God. The second key stone of, of, of the Reformation was worship. Of course, as we learn about God, we are called, we are compelled, we are driven to worship God as He calls us to worship Him. That does not get to be dictated over us, that does not get to be told to us, but we see it from the Scriptures. And so even in our service this morning, our, our goal, our aim has been to pray, to sing, to confess the Scriptures. And now we will approach the Scriptures and hear from the Scriptures because we believe who best to teach us how to worship God than God Himself. Those were the key pillars on which the Reformation lasted, and in many ways they're the key pillars on which we still stand today. God deserves to be worshipped as He's called us to worship Him. And every man, woman, and child deserves, has the right to hear from God in their language from His Word. Because of that, we are going to preach, or I will preach, from His Word this morning. We are continuing our study of the book of John, and we've found ourselves at the place where Jesus is moving on. He has spent, um, at least sermon-wise, the last several weeks with a, a man named Nicodemus, a Pharisee. And here, he continues to the countryside, but does not cease his ministry. And that is what we will be focused on this morning as I read for us the Word of God, John chapter 3. I want to begin in verse 22 and read through the 30th verse. Would you please follow along with me and excuse me for that. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing in Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. 
The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please bow with me as we ask his blessing upon this time. Lord, this indeed is your word. And this word is as true for us today as it was when it happened. Lord, we thank you for those that have gone before us. We thank you for those who have fought the battles, often with their very lives, to the stake, to the chopping block, to the pyre, believing that your word in the hands of your people will lead to right worship of you as you deserve. And in doing so, our lives will be transformed. May we continue to be blessed by the tradition, the history of which we are a part of. And may we continue to seek the very truths that they sought over 500 years ago and even still during the time of the Old and New Testament. May we place our hope, our trust, our faith in you even now as we approach your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of my pleasures in life, I love a few comic strips. Three in particular, I don't care for any others. That's the writers A.A. Uh, a. Milne, Bill Watterson, and Charles Schultz. If you recognize any of those, we can talk afterward and we have a good time. If you recognize any others, then I don't want to talk. But um, no. <laughs> the world of comics and comic strips is an interesting world. It's an interesting medium. Um, it's a challenging medium to say something with such little space. Oftentimes, you have three or four panels in order to get across a story, a message, a theme. And I really do believe, um, out of those I like, of course, being Winnie the Pooh, Calvin and Hobbes, and Peanuts, um, Calvin and Hobbes, Bill Watterson, and Charles Schultz boldly used their mediums better than anyone. If you want to explore theology, major themes such as life and death, uh, loss and heartache, childhood and serious matters, go to the, con- well, go to Scripture, but go to these comic writers. One particular comic came across my um, social media this week and I was reminded of it. On October 14th in 1993, Bill Watterson published a four panel comic for Calvin and Hobbes. And what you see is the backdrop of this comic. It's four panels, it's all blacked out with these little dots in the background, those being stars. And then in the two middle panels, you've got Calvin, the, 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 the protagonist of this comic strip. And Calvin is standing there looking at the vastness of space. And if you know Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes, you know he's mischievous, you know he's full of himself, you know he's uh, rambunctious. And in this strip, he looks up to the heavens and he says, I'm significant. And then one panel goes by as he sits there in the blankness. And then he says this, I love this, screamed the dust speck. I'm significant, screamed the dust speck. This child was realizing the vastness of space, the vastness of reality, and also his tiny part in it. 
his insignificance became aware in light of space. A lot of times we would do well to echo Calvin's exploration of significance. For far too often, many of us would not get to the last panel. Far too often in our lives and in our culture, we would say, I'm significant, and then end scene. Because that is our world, that is our focus, that is our attention, that is our center. We fail to get to the next panel where we realize that we are a small part of this world. And even if we could continue the analogy on further, we fail to get to the part that it is God who is above even the vastness of space in our very lives. Well, I do believe that John, the author of this book, in dealing with this interaction between Jesus and the followers of John the Baptist, takes us on one of these journeys on an exploration of significance, of value, of importance, of worth. And that's what we're going to see, or attempt to see this morning, from four different sections of our text. We're going to see that Jesus ministers to all kinds of people. We're going to see that man's natural desire or tendency is to point to himself. We're going to see that God, and God alone, gives us the eyes to see the truth. And then ultimately, and hopefully, we will conclude with seeing that our joy comes from exalting Christ. Each of these points will force us, will cause us to question significance. And we begin in verse 22. And here we've got the passage of time. The whole of uh, the first 21 verses of this chapter, of course, have been um, related to Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus, a religious scholar, a Pharisee, one of the high Pharisees, one of the ones that was not only important as a Pharisee, but was in charge of the Pharisees. He was significant. And Jesus spent a considerable amount of time with him and conversing with him and relating to him. But then verse 22 tells us, and then he left. Time moves on. We're moving forward. He doesn't stay with Nicodemus, but he moves into the countryside. Now you may look at this verse and, and find yourself, well, was it the next day, the next week, the next month? Um, this is kind of an indeterminate um, marker of time after this. Being back in the South, I'm, I'm relearning again that this is how we talk to people about directions in life. Go up there a ways and then turn left after you see this sign. Go up yonder. Oh, my wife hates that word. It isn't a meaning. There's no, ah, over there. You'll get there. You might could look at this verse and read that. After this, when? When, Jesus? After when? How How long? But don't be discouraged. Um, I'm reminded of the words of John 21, 25. He says toward the end of this book, there's also many other things that Jesus did where every one of them written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. There's so much that happened to and in the life of Jesus that we're going to have to wait till heaven for him to fill in the blanks. And so we don't know exactly, was this the next day, was this the next week, when did he leave? But we do know that he marched on into the countryside. And this in and of itself tells us a great deal about Jesus. 
I said that this message really is talking about significance and our own natural tendency to point inward, to point to ourselves. That's not how Jesus ministered. You see, he starts John chapter 3 with the Pharisee, and now he goes into the countryside where he will be ministering to shepherds and farmers and commoners. Again and again, and we'll see this all throughout the book of John, Jesus ministers to all different kinds of people. And this is different. This is, this is not our natural state, is it? This is not our natural way of being. We tend to want to find people just like us. We relate to people just like us. We're, we're a very inclusive people. And yet Jesus does not minister that way. Jesus ministers to all sorts, from all backgrounds, all degrees of knowledge, whether they are in caste or outcast or whatever they may be. And what is Jesus doing during this time of his ministry? Well, we're told, if we, again, just look at it and read what it says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because the water was plentiful there and people were coming to be baptized. Now, this is going to cause us some grammatical conflict when we get to chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1 tells us that Jesus did not baptize. But we just read that Jesus was there baptizing. So what do we do? Is the scripture in error? Do we cast it all away? Do we just ignore it? Well, I, I think linguistically this can be easily rectified, although it's not going to suit our English mindset. The end was baptizing here most likely referred to Jesus and the disciples as a collective unit. And so the disciples under the headship and supervision of Jesus were baptizing. Now I'm going to say more about that when I get to John chapter 4 verse 1. But we know what was happening. Baptism was happening. Water baptism. The baptism of John. This baptism, of course, and, and what John pointed people to was a cleansing, was a preparing one's mind and one's heart to get them ready to meet with God. John, really, his, his ministry, his goal, his focus was to say, Jesus is coming. I don't know what I'm doing this morning, but forgive me for that. Because I'm getting too excited. Um, which is unusual. Jesus is coming. That was John's message, his method, that was his goal. Tell people Jesus is coming. And so these two parties meet together at this place and they're ministering together. And again, we see the variety of people that Jesus ministers to. But here, as we look at the next couple of verses, we really see the heart of this passage and, and unfortunately the heart of man. Because as these two groups get together, there is conflict. Now, I know you understand this. I know you know this. Um, I recently went to a lunch put on by our funeral home for the pastors in the area, and I got to uh, sit with a, a dear fellow brother um, who goes to a different denomination than I do. And what did we do? 
What happens every time this happens? We poke at each other. Well, you use too much water. Well, you use not enough. You're over there baptizing babies. Well, you're doing this. You're doing that. We can't help it. We, we get with, with, with fellow believers of different theological backgrounds, and, and what we want to do is spar. It's, it's how we show love. We show affection by ridicule. But I don't believe that's what's happening here. I don't think that the followers of John the Baptist are kind of poking at Jesus' followers. I don't think we should read this in those light sparring terms of one group getting together with another group. I believe something more serious is going on. I think that John the Baptist's followers are offended. I think John the Baptist's followers are upset. And I think this is what's happening. The followers of John the Baptist have had a very effective ministry. People are coming to them. They're hearing the message. They're, they're listening. And they're, they're really purifying their hearts and getting ready for the Messiah who was coming. And then, unbeknownst to them, the Messiah came. And what happens? They've been saying, get ready, he's coming. He shows up and then they leave. Can you picture it in your head? Think of, think of two um, people giving a presentation or a speech in the same room on opposite sides. And one speech is, get ready, the one who is going to give the better speech is coming. And on the other side, the one who gives the better speech is come. And the one party leaves this presentation to go to that one. You know, I have to forgive me. My ear is groaning this week or something. I don't know what I've done. Especially you, Ron, forgive me. We may have to use the pulpit mic if I can't stop whatever I'm doing. I think they were offended. I, I think that they were truly upset at the loss of a crowd, at the loss of the notoriety, at the loss of what they were gaining from the audience. John Calvin says of this passage and of this argument between these two parties that this is the case. The text itself says, they're arguing, He who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing. Do you note in there kind of the, the derogatory way they reference Jesus? John the Baptist, that guy that you ministered to and you talked about and that you showed us, he's doing these things. You told us this. You're, you're the guy. You're the superior. You're the one that's given us the teaching. He's over there and look what's happening because of him. But the reality of it was, and we'll see this in just a moment, they didn't listen to John. Because if they'd listened to John, what was John's message? Go back to John chapter 1. The one who comes after me is greater because he was before me. John, his goal, his message, his aim was to tell people, get ready for Jesus. And so the followers of John the Baptist, Calvin says this, they are to blame for taking up a matter in which they did not understand. They are to blame for speaking about this matter rashly and beyond their measure of knowledge. And their greater fault is that they did not intend to maintain the lawfulness of baptism as much as to defend the cause of their master. Have you ever gotten in an argument to get in an argument? Even worse, have you ever gotten in an argument and realized you're wrong halfway through 
and then by force you're going to finish now because you've started? Or is that just me? You get so deep in it and you're like, oh, I can't give up now. We're seeing this to the end. They have no idea what they're talking about. They're out of their depth. They're out of their league. And they think they're right. That's our natural response. That's man's tendency. That's what we want to do. We want to puff ourselves up. We want to make much of ourselves. We want to say, look at me. I'm significant. They would have done better to listen to their own master's teaching. And how often do people in the world do this? We call them bandwagon fans in sports. A team starts winning and all of a sudden you're the greatest fan and you didn't know they existed. Or you, you find yourself latching on to an ideology or a, or a group or a, a mindset or a background or a teaching as if you were its founder. You'd only learned about it the week before. Far too often people do this because of what they can get out of it. I want to be a winner and this team is winning so I'm one of them. Well, what does it mean to be one of them? Even worse, many people will do this to Christianity. Many people will latch on to Christianity, to Christian ideals, as long as it's in the majority. Jesus talks about this kind of people, this mindset, um, in the parable of the sower. He says they are like those that the, so the seed is planted on the path. It may grow quickly. It may see fruit temporarily. But what happens when the storms come? If you're not truly committed by faith to this teaching, when the storms come, you're going to jump ship. You're not going to stay and weather the storm. You're not going to last. Your roots are not deep or not firmly planted. As the psalmist says in Psalm 1, you're not by the streams of water. So many people, we look inward, we point to ourselves, we're so self-focused. And then when trials and struggles and hardship and difficulties come, we're blown away. And so we might ask ourselves, we must ask ourselves, how, how do I get out of this cycle? How do I get out of this mindset? How do I understand better? We have to go to God. I love here, it would have been so easy for John the Baptist. John the Baptist could have, in response to this complaint brought by his followers, going, yep, I don't like it any more than you do. Oh boy, this is unfortunate. Less crowd, less notoriety, less publicity. But what does John do? What is the message of John the Baptist? What is his response to his own followers? Verse 27. A person cannot even receive one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. John's admitting, this is great. Fantastic. This was the plan all along. Of course they're not going to follow me when Jesus is here. And by the way, you don't get this because you're not resting, trusting in God. You should not be jealous. Rather, you should run. You should rejoice. You should celebrate. For John, this is mission accomplished. He uses this analogy here of the bride and the bridegroom. The bride is not shared with the best men. 
The bride belongs to the groom. That's not how marriage works, and that's not how salvation works. It's not that I heard the gospel from John the Baptist. You heard it from Paul, but I heard it from Jesus. Therefore, I am superior. No, we're all called to go to, to look to, to point at, to set our aim toward Christ. And I, and I love John the Baptist for this because of this. And I tell you this soberly, that doesn't come without a cost. There will be cost in your life for deflating yourself and promoting Christ. How do we know that? Well, if you continue reading in Scripture, what does John get as his reward for this message? Beheading. His head chopped off, brought on a silver platter to a jealous woman who hated him and hated what he stood for. What did men like John Wycliffe, John Huss, Martin Luther, John Calvin, all of these men who fought with and for their lives during the time of the Protestant Reformation. A little known fact about Calvin. Calvin, during his ministry, was actively teaching ministers. He was training ministers. He was performing seminary tasks. And where was he sending them? To France. What was the penalty in France for opposing Roman Catholic teaching in the time of John Calvin? Death by fire. And yet he taught them and yet they went. Why? Because they believed, were truly convicted, Christ is greater than me. His truth is greater than my life. His word is more precious than my reality and my world and my significance and my meaning. And here in this last Verse and a half, we see really the pinnacle of this text, one of the greatest verses in all of Scripture, and one we should all memorize because it's one of the easiest to memorize. But before we get to verse 30, we finish verse 29. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. What is the purpose of having maids of honor and best men in your wedding? Well, they serve a few purposes. One, to take care of things so you don't have to worry about it. To make sure that your tie is right and your, your shoes are clean and that someone's got the ring and that the getaway vehicle is gassed up and it's ready to go. And that the music at the reception is what needs to happen so that you can focus on what you need to focus on that day. And yet at the same time, the purpose of the maids of honor and the groomsmen is to get out of the way. It's just a little known, not really a little known secret, but in, in a wedding, um, the bride goes through a great deal of stress to pick a dress for the maids of honor that is, looks good, but not great. Tell me I'm wrong. Because they're not the purpose. They're not the focus. It's not about them. It's about the bride. And as Christians, 
We are the bride of Christ. We are his bride. And so for John the Baptist to say, I'll get out of the way. I'm just back here. I'm telling you to go to him. Here he is. I can step back. I've done my job. What does he say here? He must increase, but I must decrease. Oh, how would our lives be different if we lived every day like that? If we got out of bed in the morning and we quoted to ourselves as a form of prayer to the Lord and to our own hearts, God, today you will increase in my life through my work, through my words, and I will decrease or diminish. How would that affect our country? How would that affect our businesses? How would that affect our schools? How would that affect our households? If we lived with the mindset that said, whatever may come, whatever the cost, whatever the consequence, I will promote Christ. For John the Baptist, it was worth it. For many of the apostles, they would face death, unspeakable deaths. Throughout Christian history, many men and women would die believing this verse. I've got a quote in my office from Jim Elliott, missionary. Um, they wrote a, made a movie about him, End of the Spear. And a quote I try to remind myself often, it's, in fact, it's an eye line at me at all times in my office. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot have to gain what he cannot lose. Do you think about that? He is no fool who gives up what he cannot have to gain what he cannot lose. For humans, for humanity, death rate is 100%, given the margin of error for two that went to heaven immediately. We're all going to die. That's guaranteed. I don't say that to be morbid. I don't say that to be depressing. I say it as a reality, as a fact. We're going to die or Jesus is going to come back first. Wouldn't you rather give that up to spend an eternity with him? Wouldn't you rather live a mindset, a lifestyle, an attitude that says, I'm going to live for Christ because it's better to live for him forever than live for myself now? Shouldn't that be what we strive to teach our children? Shouldn't that be how we strive to conduct our businesses, have ethical practices, to give our, our clients Honesty, isn't that better than a profit margin? Oh, that we would seek to elevate, to point to Jesus Christ. And then the last thing I'll say this morning will really is to answer a question, how do I do it? How do I live that way? How can I have this lifestyle, this mindset? Well, John tells John the Baptist tells us in verse 28, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. Ask God, God, help me live for you and live for me less. God, help me know your word better that I trust you more and rely on myself less. God, help me to pray to you more, to think your thoughts and know your ways so that I trust in myself less. And that's how we live a lifestyle that says he must increase, but I must decrease. And, and friends, I tell you, it may lead 
to your beheading to live this way. It, it may live, lead to your dying in a jungle. It, it may lead to your being burned upon a pyre for this truth. But oh, the rejoicing in heaven. Go to the book of Revelation and look at the rejoicing of the saints, at the martyrs, at those who gave their life for Christ. And tell me it's not worth it. Jesus thought so. John thought so. May we think so as well. Would you please pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, this is easy to preach. It's easy to say, oh, is it hard to believe? And oh, is it even harder to live out? We live in a selfish culture. Our natural tendencies to make much of ourself. But Lord, as we think about those that have gone before us, as we think about those who fought the battle for the Reformation, to get your word in the hands of your people that you might be worshipped as you've called us to, might we continue that battle today. And we can only do so by asking for you to lead it. By studying your word. By coming to you in prayer. By observing the sacraments as you rightly have called us to. And by fellowshipping together with fellow believers. And standing for truth, whatever the cost. Lord, may it be our plea, our cry each and every day that you would increase in our lives and we would decrease. Thank you, Lord, for your word and the truth it contains. May we go forth in power having heard it. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.